We all misbehave sometimes. Want to change the world, indulge in some bad behavior. Hello and welcome to Bad Behavior. My name is Nicola. And I'm Rosalind. How have you been bad this week, Rosalind? So recently it was Australia Day or Invasion Day, Survival Day, as we also call it. And I realized that a lot of friends who live overseas don't realize that Australia Day is a very controversial day in Australia. For those who do live overseas, we celebrate on the 26th of January. And in 1788, that was the day that the first fleet landed in Australia to colonize Australia with white settlers. It is a day that signifies the beginning of the dispossession of Indigenous people people, the destruction of their culture, and represents the massacre of Indigenous people here in Australia. It was originally celebrated on another day. We should definitely celebrate an Australia Day, but it should not be on January 26th. There is a huge movement to change the date and a lot of this movement has gained momentum through social media and that's been a wonderful way for people to understand the implications of the trauma associated with celebrating Australia Day and by not acknowledging that white Australia has a black history. Absolutely. Social media is a huge part of this movement. It's how we learnt about it and it's fascinating to think about that. Absolutely. And when we're thinking about social media and the fact that we do record this podcast on stolen Indigenous land, we thought that we would really love to hear another perspective about social media and in particular how Indigenous communities use social media. So we decided to talk to someone. Today, we will be talking to Professor Bronwyn Carlson, who is the head of the Department of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University. Professor Carlson is an Aboriginal woman who was born on and lives on Dahawal country in New South Wales, Australia. She is the author of the book, The Politics of Identity, Who Counts as Aboriginal Today? and the co-editor of The Politics of Identity. Yeah, so it's absolutely correct that almost every aspect of everyday life has in some way been shaped, modified or enhanced by social media technologies. I mean, this is a big country, so social media has diminished the issues of distance for many Aboriginal people. A lot of us live in urban settings, the majority of Indigenous people, but we still have links to homelands that may be elsewhere. We have links to community and family or colleagues that could be elsewhere across the country. So it diminishes that distance for us and we can stay in contact. It allows for collective volume of our voices. So when there are issues that arise on social media or in mainstream media or across the country is upsetting to us, racist or an issue for us, we have a collective voice and it amplifies our voices so people can get behind it. And we saw that a lot with hashtags Indigenous Dads a couple of years back, that campaign that was set about to kind of counteract the Bill Leak cartoon and the ABC reporting of the Dondale youth institution where we saw images of Indigenous kids being tortured. So it gives us this big loud voice together. It also, you know, really provides some safe sort of spaces, particularly for some groups within our communities, like the LBGTQI plus communities, who can actually feel safe in online um, pockets and places they create for themselves. It's really enabled large scale and timely information sharing. And there's some really great examples about the way in which Indigenous people have used social media in, in ways that are quite different to non-Indigenous people to help and support other members of our community. Um, it also really highlights excellent work. It shows, you know, when Indigenous people have something important to say that we can have a platform where we've been otherwise 
you know, ignored by mainstream media. And it can really raise the profile of Indigenous voices right across the country. So, you know, I've been interacting with a midwife and scholar from James Cook Uni from the Torres Straits, whom I might never have had ever met before. Other than the support from ourselves, amongst ourselves, and some critical allies, there's very little support. And that's one of the reasons I'm really interested in this space here. And I'm currently working on a Australian Research Council grant and I'm looking at Indigenous people's use of social media for help seeking and help giving because I'm really interested in what people do if they need to find help and how do they use social media uh, for that way and what we found is that you know Indigenous people are using social media to connect with each other to get support for those kinds of things so primarily for us we use informal networks so we draw our strength from each other and plus Indigenous organisations Indigenous groups and programmes etc more so than mainstream or government organisations so social media, because there's so many of us on there, it provides those kind of networks that people can connect. Um, so currently I'm working with the Aboriginal Health and Medical Research Council on a cyberbullying and online violence project in a way to try and show people that there are places that they can go for help for those kinds of things for online violence. Absolutely an awesome tool for such things and it's potentially dangerous. Those are the kind of two sides to that. You know, for others, identifying as Indigenous is a political statement. We do it, we do it loudly. It helps us belong, it helps us connect. Great way to meet other Indigenous people in this digital world. But for some people in my research, they decided they wouldn't identify openly online for a few reasons. One was the fear of trolling cyberbullying, online violence, including racism, which took its toll on people. And some people said that they didn't have the energy to cope with or deal with that online as well as in everyday life. So they made a choice to just either be a kind of viewer auditing sort of Twitter and joining posts and not really commenting or revealing that they were an Indigenous person for their own safety. And others decided not to because they were feeling really fearful of being confronted about their physical appearance. So they might have been fair in colouring, might have had blue eyes, might not have looked phenotypically the way in which a lot of people stereotype Indigenous people to look. So they were fearful of the kind of conflict that might confront them. And so they decided not to openly identify, but they were, you know, still kept in contact with Indigenous groups and issues and followed things to be part of that, but just for their own safety more so than anything else. And, you know, some people just said it was too exhausting. They actually had fatigue from the battles, from facing racists, facing trolls, facing conflict, facing issues around their identity, and they were just fatigued from it but wanted to remain on social media. A lot of people see themselves as being opposed to racism but will stay silent. And so what we need is more people to be anti racism to call it out and you know um, I've seen this on social media myself when somebody's made a racist post against somebody and then non-indigenous people will come on and go educate yourself that's not correct but I also caution people to be careful of the battles you know because just having to be constantly because I kid you not the amount of racism on social media is so significant that if you were following indigenous people you would have to spend most of your day counteracting racist comments. It is relentless and even to the point where some publications that post on social media turn off the commenting so as Indigenous people have some sense of safety when they produce op-eds etc. So you'd be constantly battling and I think that in itself can have some form of fatigue on people as well and we have to remember you know that we don't know what kind of past that you know a lot of people have had we don't know what kind of triggers will take place when people are confronted with this so I always say to people you know what you have every right to block and delete 
every right, and that's what you should do. You shouldn't engage with just constant racists. It's just too much. It really is too much. And we're not taught on how to respond. So in the everyday, if I'm confronted by racists if for whatever um, you know they have to say, I can say something like, you know, sorry, you've mistaken me for someone who thinks like you, and I don't. And I can choose to walk away and not engage. But social media is so much different because it's all day, every day. It's ubiquitous. It follows you around. We all have missed, you know, we get dings and, and sort of chimes on our phones when somebody's commented. It's so easy to get drawn into these pointless arguments. If somebody holds really deep-seated racist views and they feel brazen enough with their picture and profile name to make comments to people, then they're not going to be deterred by anything you have to say. But I don't think we should allow them to get away with it either. And I, I love, there's some great stories from Indigenous people who've called them out. Nova Paris, former senator, she called out a racist on social media who actually was found guilty in a court of law. There are things you can do. A lot of people don't know that the Office of E-Safety Commission has huge authority to pull down such posts and to actually take action on your behalf. So there are things that you can do, but taking on racists, taking them on every day, all day, you've got to think what that might do to your soul. So Bronwyn's point about blocking and deleting people and experiencing fatigue online from the horrible stuff that sometimes clogs up our news feeds really resonates with me because it's something that I've been thinking about quite a lot is the act of practicing boundaries and self-care online, which is kind of a space where I think those kind of considerations can get lost quite easily and... I'd never really considered how not having boundaries with social media can lead to really can lead to exhaustion and burnout and really bad thought patterns in your head. And I have kind of been trying to reimagine the way that I interact with social media. And one of the things I found super helpful is carefully curating the people I follow. So going through and making sure that I do not feel bad when I go through my newsfeed. I'm not constantly comparing myself to everyone else that I see, that it's full of people who are doing great things with their lives and people that I connect with. It's interesting to hear her talk about that. I think about too how we when you talk about safety online, there's so much about how to avoid being unsafe you know who not to talk to what sites not to go to but there's kind of this thing where you're supposed to avoid this kind of interaction as much as you can but the truth is you can't avoid it really you know if you use the internet really in any capacity nowadays you're going to find people who are spreading hateful ideas or attacking people or making very personal comments based on race sexuality gender whatever it is abstinence is not the answer in anything like that you know how do we start a conversation about how do we react to this stuff when we do take it personally how do we process and work through that kind of thing online you know if we can't avoid it absolutely because the personal is public it's like all these blurry lines where you know sometimes it's really really humanizing to see people sharing their low points online but then what if you see that at the wrong time you have very little control over what's going to come up next in your feed or like how you're going to react to something and I don't think I made 
the connection between my bad moods and my use of social media. They definitely impact each other. And for me, a lot of it comes from like my image of myself and my body. Like I find myself feeling really bad about the way I look sometimes after I've been on social media for extended periods of time. And so then I've created a strict boundary with that and I've made sure to put things in place. But again, that's a privilege that I've been able to do that because my you know my profile's on private and like in my profile picture you can clearly see that I'm white messages that I'm getting are rarely of a hateful nature whereas I think people of color can't really escape the reality that it's a very different space to navigate and like people don't talk about privilege as much online as they do like outside in the world if that makes sense yeah and Bronwyn made the point while we were talking to her that the digital space and the real life there is no divide it is real life you know this is how we live in our society there should not be an idea of oh the digital person and the real person you know there's too much of this discussion about how anonymity works online and how you know separated that is it's not We grew up with social media. This is our real life. These comments to us are real. They're engaging with real people or towards real people. And in order to have a discussion about, you know, exactly that kind of thing of how do we talk about privilege? How do we talk about how to deal with stuff? We have to accept that there is no divide there. And then you have to put uh, rules in place. You have to figure out when to react and how to react. And that's the whole thing of trolls too. Like these people who don't want to attach their names and their faces to really hateful sentiments and how it's so easy to get away with doing that and it's such a common practice too but so hurtful like really really hurtful and it just especially with our conversation about invasion day and like the movement to change the date like all of that is so positive and yet you still in those comment sections there's still so much hate too which it really makes me appreciate and want to make space to nurture and care for the activists who put themselves in that line of fire. It also makes me want to learn more about the help in place too for people who are just constantly getting that kind of hate chucked at them when they're just trying to make a difference in the world. I mean there's that understanding that people have I think wrongly that if you're an activist and you're putting out opinions online then you're inciting something and if people react certain ways and send you hateful things you put yourself in the public arena so you kind of have to take that you know but when it comes to you know things that we're discussing here with Bronwyn about people of color online or people who you know are openly gay online or or whatever it is that's just their personal life that has become a public like political stance on no fault of theirs they're not going out there and throwing out any incendiary ideas they're just being online as a human being as we all are so it's kind of crazy that it's like you know if you're online then you are opening yourself to that kind of thing no you're not that's such an interesting point like just the mere fact of existing online as an indigenous person is like a political act and it shouldn't be it shouldn't be and I think as two white women sitting here talking about it I think it is something that we need to be more aware of and more aware of our privilege around that 
I mean, there's always more to learn. And I think as long as you're being productive with how you approach racism online and like when to school people and when to step in and kind of be protective of people of colour, then I think you're moving in in the right direction. Absolutely. Sometimes when silence is being complicit, you know, times when if you don't say, no, I don't agree you're actually condoning something and there are times when silence is safety. I'm still learning how to navigate that difference. I think the danger is when we start to think about social media as some online world which is not in the real world and there's some difference there. It's not. It's an everyday practice that a lot of people are involved in and most people who can access the internet have a phone or access to be online are generally on social media. I'm sure there are people who are not. It's quite a you know an everyday activity for millions of people right across the world and including here in Australia. So um, the idea that people are going to you know stop using it or doing all these things is not really going to happen in, in the short time. You know, maybe in the future that might happen, but for now, we have to work out ways in our society and how we're going to deal with that. I often think about Indigenous people and, and part of our cultural protocol. There are things that we know um, how to behave. We're taught this from young uh, children. We're informed by our kinship systems. We understand that there are certain protocols. And I'd say in non-Indigenous society, that's the same way. You wouldn't speak to people in a certain way. You behave in a particular manner. We don't teach that in the digital sense to our children. What we need to do is social media sort of hit us a few years back and it's kind of like suddenly upon us all and we haven't stopped to think about how we're educating young people about our cultural and social belief systems and worldviews about how to behave in digital spaces. We have to stop this nonsense that it's somehow an anonymous space. It's different from the real world. It doesn't have the same impacts. It certainly does. If you were to talk to people and speak to people in the way that some people do on social media, there would be social consequences. I'm currently working with the Aboriginal Health and Medical Research Council producing a whole range of resources to let people know firstly what cyberbullying or online violence is and what it can look like because I fear that a lot of older people might not have a really good understanding of what's going on behind their kids screens. They might not have an understanding of what cyberbullying can look like, what symptoms, what reactions, what behavior should they look out for to be able to then you know jump in and say something's going wrong here. A lot of people might not know that and also it comes down to other people good allies our critical friends to actually take note you know when a young non-indigenous girl posted that she was going to suicide because of cyberbullying the government stepped in put it up funding to look at cyberbullying and even Scott Morrison has come out as part of his election pitch saying that he will make sentences for trolls etc much longer because this is a serious issue. That shouldn't actually be an election pitch. It should actually just be something the government should do. This year in January, five young Indigenous kids under the age of 14 took their own lives. One of those young people also posted, when I'm gone, the racism and bullying will stop. There is an absolute crisis for Indigenous kids suiciding And there's an absolute crisis in this country for online bullying and racism and violence. There is no research that's looking at that correlation. And that's a major issue. Loving bad behaviour? Join our Patreon page. You'll get access to bonus episodes, juicy behind-the-scenes content, live Q&As and much more. We'll see you there. I think some of the things that people should follow, one would be Indigenous X, which is probably the most well-known, but there are some really significant voices online, like Celeste Little, who writes some fabulous op-eds. 
Yeah, brilliant writer. Lisa Wadigo, who actually promotes Indigenous business. And I often quote Lisa because she's absolutely fantastic and it's her company that designed our cyberbullying posters. As she once said that Twitter is like a digital midden. And so if you're familiar with the midden, that it's kind of like this place where people meet and layer upon layer of something is left behind. Yeah, middens can tell us where Aboriginal people have met for 60,000 years or plus. So Twitter is this place where all of this information is being layered upon each other and then in the future, our future ancestors will look at Twitter and think about what kind of world we were living in at this time. Lisa's a fabulous scholar who started Deadly Bloggers many years ago, so Indigenous people have been participating in online spaces for a long, long time. She's definitely somebody to also follow. And one of the things that we have to remember is that people who come to social media, this is not a disembodied space, so this is people with agency, with history, with life. And for a lot of Indigenous people, they come with a past history of trauma. And that trauma is often triggered by racism. So they have this life history. They have it in their story. And then they come to social media and they're not only impacted by local politic, they're talking national and international. So there's this shared recognition amongst Indigenous people when we see people, Native American people, Maori and other Indigenous people around the world who are suffering the same kinds of fates as that we see here. And so there's this like global shared recognition in that space around trauma and racism and hate speech. So it's a huge deal. But I'm not sure that non-Indigenous people, other than calling out that kind of stuff, would, would ever feel that same impact or be able to combat it in the same way because a lot of those racists and those trolls are looking for a response from Indigenous people. They want to target Indigenous people. So I'd say to non-Indigenous people who want to be good allies, who want to be accomplices, who want to stand up and who want to be um, part of making change, you know, being part of the solution for a better world, is to educate yourself and share that education with others. So if you know the true history of this country and the true circumstances for Indigenous people, then you'll be able to respond quite freely and encourage your friends and family to do so. The more people know the truth will make change. So a young Native American PhD student of mine, she said people ought to be accomplices because good allies just means they can speak up for Indigenous people, but they put nothing on the line. When you're an accomplice, you're in it for the change and you put yourself on the line. You look at the resources that you might have that you can produce. So it's safer for you to speak up, as you've mentioned before, but it's also safer for you to do many things and you have access to resources. So being a, an accomplice, and uh, we need a few more of those. It was absolutely incredible to talk to Bronwyn about these issues. I think that there were so many points that she raised that are really, really salient to us as people who need to go out and learn more on these topics. There are a lot of different threads that I'd love to explore further about social media and learning how to be an accomplice rather than an ally. All of these things are things that I think Nicola and I need to sit down and really think about and really explore and maybe find some more topics that we could go further into and more people we could talk about this because so many of our listeners I feel will be in the same position as us you know people who want to find ways to be that accomplice and to be that positive power for change while still accepting and understanding our privilege and, and navigating these places online 
to create safe spaces for others. Absolutely. And I think too, even us, the idea to create this podcast and like making space to have these types of conversations, it's powerful when you speak to someone like Bronwyn who provides really distinct perspective. And like, I love having these conversations. And we always say every time we talk to these incredible women, we leave feeling inspired and we leave feeling fired up and ready to make changes within our own life. And for me, I would say one of my reflections from the conversation with her is about there's no disconnect between my social media self and my actual self. And I think when I'm navigating those spaces to continue to remember the power structures that are at play and the things that are unspoken but that exist underneath all of it that are kind of impacting different people's experience and as with anything it's always good to be reminded of things that are totally outside of your scope of experience I use those moments to kind of jolt me awake and to remember why I constantly need to be furthering my learning about feminism and it really it gives me like direction and hope in a way (laughs) that is so tangible Bronwyn was amazing and she really talked on so many different things that have raised a lot of questions that touch my life in different ways and that have raised things that maybe I need to change about being online as well. If anyone listening has any topics related to this that have been raised throughout the episode, it would be absolutely amazing if you reached out to us because we would love to explore questions that you yourself are asking and look into that more. We are going to link to the people that she shouted out to and we'll also link to some of our favourite Indigenous artists and activists. Thank you so much to Bronwyn for coming on and chatting to us and we can't wait to talk to you all again on the next episode of the Bad Behaviour podcast. Loving bad behaviour? Join our Patreon page. You'll get access to bonus episodes, juicy behind-the-scenes content, live Q&As and much more. We'll see you there. We all misbehave sometimes Wanna change the world Indulge in some bad behaviour